Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to Get That Bread, a podcast discussing value investing strategies. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode. Um, and on this episode, we're going to talk about arguably the most popular, quote unquote, old school value metric that people can utilize. And that's going to be the price to book ratio. And essentially, what the ratio is, is it's the price you pay versus the equity value as recorded on the balance sheet. So mathematically, it's um, you can get there by either of two ways. Uh, you can get through market capitalization divided by equity. Again, the equity value you extrapolate from the balance sheet for, as of the most recent fiscal period. And then the other way is price per share divided by equity value per share. Quick little uh, note, you know, when I talk about equity, it's the same thing as book value, which is the same thing as shareholders equity. It's just all kind of industry, finance, uh, lingo. It, it, they all mean the same exact thing. So uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with what book value or equity means, it's essentially the net residual value of an asset after paying back all of the liabilities or financial obligations associated with that asset or company. So in accounting, arguably the most important equation is assets equals liabilities plus equity. Now, if you were to just reverse the order or reverse engineer that math or that formula, you get equity equals assets minus liabilities. That's kind of all you need to know about um, how to arrive at equity. Now, with that being said, there's another thing that I, I think is really important for you to take note of regarding book value and equity. So the value of the asset is at cost minus liabilities. So what I mean by that is uh, you have to be able to recognize the dichotomy between the book value of a company versus the market value of that company. So a uh, quick example, if you had paid $100 for a house and the mortgage value is $75, then your book value is $25, right? $100 is the, the value of the whole asset. The mortgage or the or the debt is 75 and the remaining balance is what you had paid to acquire that home. Now, imagine a scenario where real estate prices are, you know, across the board increasing in your particular neighborhood and the value of your home increases to $125. Well, what's the market value of your equity now? Well, the market value of your, of your equity now is 125 minus 75, which equals 50. But from an accounting standpoint, you don't record the market value of your home. You record the cost value of your home, the cost uh, equity value of your home. So the cost equity value is $25. That's just one example of the difference between book value versus market value. Now, that's always going to be the case for uh, fixed assets. There there will be instances, where we'll, which we'll discuss later on in this episode, where we will adjust certain assets to reflect the market value, but um, we'll get to that when we get to that subject later down later down in this uh, episode. In the meantime, I, I just want you to be able to recognize accounting book value isn't going to always be the same as market value. Always recognize that. Okay, so uh, how do I kind of interpret the price to book value ratio. So basically, let's say you, you come across a company where the price to book value is less than one. What that essentially means is you're buying the company below the cost of the residual assets. Another way of thinking about that is by realizing that you're paying less 
for the residual assets, residual assets meaning assets minus liabilities, uh, compared to what management actually paid. So let's say a company paid uh, for an office building uh, for $500, put down $100 in equity, and financed the rest. And you later on come down the road and you're interested in buying that particular company and the company is offering itself to you for $80. Well, the equity is worth 100. Now the price, the market price is 80. That means you're getting that company for a price to book value of 0.8 times, or in other words, 80% of the equity value. The company, the management team paid $100, but you're getting it for 80. So that's kind of the way of interpreting uh, a, a scenario where you're being offered a company for less than book value. You're buying the underlying residual assets at a price that's below what management had to pay to acquire those assets. Okay, so how do you actually employ the price to book um, metric? And I kind of want to start that off with a quick little metaphor. So just like the way you wouldn't ever utilize a hammer to dig a ditch, um, you wouldn't use the price to book value metric in all instances and in, in all scenarios where you need to value a company. It just doesn't make sense. It's not the proper tool. You need to be able to understand what segments of the stock market does it in fact make sense to use the price to book value. So uh, in my, my opinion, the price to book value metric is going to be less informative to investors when analyzing companies that do not hold large equity investments, uh, financial assets, or um, where companies operate with large fixed assets or where those fixed assets represent the substantial majority of uh, the total asset base. Uh, it doesn't make sense to, in my view, it makes less sense to analyze a company uh, with, that kind of, um, with that kind of asset makeup. And the reason is because book value, oftentimes, it's not going to be reflective of economic reality. Quick example, the one I just talked about regarding um, um, asset price or real estate prices appreciating, right? So um, book value, like I said, remember, is assets valued at cost minus total, total liabilities. So the one exception that I was kind of talking about before is where you're talking about or you're focusing on um, investment assets. Investment financial assets are what's called in accounting mark to market and essentially what that means is the asset is not valued at cost but rather um, at fair value based on some quotable price in the marketplace so um, what do i mean by all this say that you own a netflix stock currently worth 375 dollars whereas you paid 300 dollars for them so if you mark to market that means on your balance sheet, you're, you're going to record that stock at $375, not the price at which you had paid. But when we're talking about fixed assets, usually they're going to be recorded in the balance sheet at the cost that you had paid, net of accumulated depreciation and amortization. So let's just kind of continue on that example. So, so okay, fixed assets. Let's say your business purchased a piece of uh, commercial property for $100,000. Well, over the ensuing years, over the useful life of that particular asset, it will decline from, a st uh, from an accounting standpoint due to depreciation. Depreciation occurs under U.S. accounting rules, even if 
the real estate market in your area is appreciating. So, you know, that reflects that there could be times when the accounting net asset value of your business is not going to reflect economic reality. So, and this is where, you know, market value is going to diverge from book value. And it's actually part of the reason why I think Warren Buffett, you know, as disclosed in his most recent annual letter, that's why he he stated he's no longer going to provide his investors with the percentage change in the book value per share on a year-over-year basis relative to the S&P 500 total return because it's it's going to become a less meaningful gauge of company performance. And this is kind of what he says. He says for nearly 3 decades the initial paragraph, initial paragraph meaning inside his annual letter featured the percentage change in Berkshire, Berkshire's per share book value. It's now time to abandon that practice. Berkshire has morphed from a company whose assets are concentrated in marketable securities or stocks into one whose major value resides in operating businesses. If you would just dig a little deeper and take a look at Berkshire's 10K, you'll notice that Berkshire's investment portfolio, including cash, cumulatively represent about 45% of the whole company's assets. So given that fact, most of the assets of the business, uh, they don't have a quotable, quotable market value. And so it becomes very difficult to value those assets utilizing book value. Um, because there's no quotable market, you just can't really gauge, uh, or from an accounting standpoint, you're not going to reflect the market value of those assets. So what are the scenarios where it does make sense to look at a company under the lens of the price to book value metric? And in my view, I think it makes a lot more sense to utilize this metric when um, when a company's, you know, when the substantial portion or if not the majority of the assets are composed of financial investments or marketable securities, equity holdings, or, you know, any kind of investment that have a quotable price associated with them. Think insurance companies that manage enormous bond portfolios, um, commercial banks, or major holding companies that own publicly traded companies. They will have, you know, this quotable marketplace where you could kind of reference what are their assets actually worth. And so I think it's in those instances where price to book value does make more sense. Now, I know for some of you out there who've been around the block and who've gone to, you know, business school and whatnot, when you hear price to book value comparing against commercial banks or banks overall, the first thing you could probably point out is the 2007-2008 financial crisis where, you know, the likes of Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns had, you know, book values that were virtually meaningless where they, you know, it was composed of toxic mortgages or, or, or uh, you know, all, all these risk exposures embedded inside the book value that um, really, yeah, really made those companies worthless. But nonetheless, with that being said, banks commercial banks, they, a lot of them generate money off of loans. And loans, they mimic and they're like bonds. And so book value, I think, is still going to be a meaningful proxy of value. So if you kind of take a look at the insurance company AIG's balance sheet, approximately 64% of its assets are composed of financial investments. So the majority of their assets are marketable securities. So because it's marketable, uh, it is going to make sense for you to utilize the book value or price the book value metrics, uh, you know, regarding these insurance companies or when you're looking at AIG. So I just wanted to um, 
I just wanted to highlight which kind of companies I think make sense for you to use the, the price to book. Okay, so another thing that I want to highlight is what's really interesting when you're when you're using the price to book value metric in tandem with return on equity. So let's say if you have a company trading at 0.5 times book value or 50% of book value and generates kind of like this unappealing return on equity of 10%, well, your effective return on equity because in, because of the price which you paid is actually 20%. Let me just break that math down a little bit for you. So if a company has an equity value of 100 bucks and it generates uh, $10 in profit on that you know, on that equity, the ROE is 10%. Now, despite the fact that the equity value is 100 bucks, let's say you paid $50, right? Let's just like the way I said this in the example, you're paying half of book value. Now, since you paid $50 for that equity, well, you're still going to get $10 um, in earnings or return. So $10 divided by 50 is 20%. So your effective ROE after considering the price in which you're paying is a 20% ROE. That's why price really matters. And that's why when you're utilizing um, the price to book value metric in tandem with ROE, it's going to be a kind of an interesting exercise. Now on the flip side, let's say you're looking at a really hot stock where the company generates like this really crazy ROE of 75%. Yet the valuations are pretty high. It's a growth stock. A lot of investors know about it and they, they were kind of plowing into the stock. And so valuations are at 20 times book. Well, what is the effective ROE there then? The company generates a return on equity of 75%. Book value, this company is trading at 20 times book value. Well, you'd have to do 75 divided by 20, which gets you to 3.75%. 3.75% effective ROE is a very low ROE. You can kind of compare that in with like other alternative uh, asset classes. And I think like AAA rated bonds might be yielding somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, and I think uh, the 10 year treasury T-bill is trading at 2.4%. You know, that kind of ROE is not that great when you compare it against other uh, rates of returns. Okay, so moving on, I think part of the reason why the price to book value is so widely recognized in the value community you know, aside from the fact that, you know, there are plenty of academic studies that suggest that buying low price to book value stocks generate outsized returns is the fact that Ben Graham, the father of value investing, used to employ a certain rendition of the price to book value metric. He had his own twist he, and he called it net nets or what Warren Buffett would later call cigar butt stocks. And so essentially, you know, Graham, he figured if you can scoop up a basket of stocks which had valuations of 30% below their theoretical liquidation value, you would do exceptionally well. And the way he calculated the theoretical liquidation value was uh, net current assets minus total liabilities. And so if he could buy stocks at a discount from that liquidation value, uh, he figured you could do really well. And I think he did do really, really well. And so he would buy stocks that are trading at 70% 70 70 of uh, that theoretical liquidation value. So net current assets minus total liabilities. That 30% differential, right, from the theoretical liquidation value, that's what he called his margin of safety or margin of error. And so, you know, Buffett called these cigar butt stocks because he kind of figured it's synonymous with somebody walking down the street and picking up uh, uh, like a 
a smoked cigar that's already been used uh, that has one free puff left in it. And, uh, you know, it's seriously ugly, but it's, you know, it's free. You got a free puff. And so it's, it's the same thing with these kinds of companies trading at such low valuations. They're extremely rare, uh, but when you do occasionally find them, they're oftentimes plagued by real, like, enormous risks. So think fraud, accounting irregularities, you know, just really hairy stuff. You know, I think just based on my own experience, I remember the last time I came across one of these was I think like 2011, 2012, when I'm, I was coming across Chinese reverse merger stocks. They were basically, as, insofar as, as, I, as I understood, they were fraudulent companies, Chinese companies trying to tap into the United States uh, capital markets by buying shell companies. It's, anyways, they were, they were fraudulent. And they, were, they really weren't worth what they were indicating on their balance sheets. And so, you know, another thing is companies can way overinflate the value of their inventories or their accounts receivables where, you know, they're not going to generate a return or see the cash on their, their accounts receivables. And so, you know, that could be a scenario where companies seemingly look cheap uh, and look like they're trading below the theoretical liquidation values. So you have to be careful uh, and you have to utilize a certain level of nuance when you know utilizing that metric or the price to, bu- price to book value metric. I think before I kind of end this conversation around the series of stock valuation, I think the most important thing I kind of want to leave with you guys is that you certainly need flexibility and fluidity whenever employing these metrics. You need to understand the context. Okay, moving on, we're going to discuss um, stocks specifically over the next coming few episodes. Um, The next episode, we're going to focus on a company called NL Industries, ticker symbol NL. And this most recent conversation around net asset values and book value is going to be the perfect segue or stepping stone to dive into that particular situation. And, you know, to close out this episode, if you found anything that was quite interesting or helpful for you, where you may have recognized something or come across something that you hadn't recognized before, we'd really appreciate it if you hit the subscribe button, give us some um, five-star reviews. We are also available on YouTube, and so you can check out our content over there. It's it's largely similar, and so, uh, yeah. Uh, with that, I, uh, I guess I'll catch you guys in the next episode. All right, take care. Bye. The opinions expressed in this podcast reflect the opinions of the presenter at the time they were made and are subject to change any time after the date of the podcast's production without notice. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. While the statements made in this podcast is based on publicly available information and is believed to be accurate as of the date given, No representation is made with regard to its accuracy or completeness. This podcast and the affiliated content are neither an offer nor a solicitation to buy or sell securities. The presenter and its affiliates may directly hold securities mentioned in this material.